0: This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast
1: program. Today on Walter Edgar's Journal, we're featuring a public conversation between our guest hosts, Dr. Mark Smith and Dr. James C. Cobb, about South Carolina's economy during World War I. This conversation was recorded at the University of South Carolina's Capstone Conference Center in Columbia on February the 13th, 2018. It was part of a series, Conversations on South Carolina History, sponsored by USC College of Arts and Sciences.
2: Welcome, as you can see, and probably here, I am not Walter Edgar. But he asked me to step in for him, and I consider myself to be very fortunate to be stepping in on this particular conversation because it's an honor to interview one of my own favorite historians, James C. Cobb, who is the Spaulding Professor of History at the University of Georgia. Uh, Let me say a few words about Jim. Um, He really is one of the preeminent historians of the country and certainly of the American South. He's a former president of the Southern Historical Association and he's written very widely on the interaction between the economy, society and culture, especially of the 20th century South. Uh, He's written a bunch of books and his most recent one deals with the American South since the second world war but his earlier work speaks very directly to the question that's going to preoccupy us tonight and that is the first world war south carolina and the economic implications of that war for our state so jim welcome It's would like to have you um i'm going to begin by asking you a question that people usually ask me i'm just going to ask it slightly differently they'll ask me you're not from round here are you <laughs> And I say that I'm not. Uh-huh. Um, and then they asked me how, despite not being from around here, I got into Southern history. So could you tell us just briefly what inspired you to get into Southern history, uh, to, to get, dedicate your professional life to the study of the South, and where are you from? Well, I was, uh, I was actually born in Anderson, South Carolina, as
0: most people who lived in, um, and grew up in Hart County, Georgia did, if they weren't born still at home. Uh, Anderson Hospital was where you were born, and if you lived long enough, you died. If you didn't die of something uh, unexpectedly out on the road, you you went back to the hosp- Anderson Hospital to die. So I, I feel as though I kind of grew up uh, a South Carolinian because we got, you know, all our TV came in the Carolinas, we read the Anderson Independent, which was, you know, it's sort of like, uh, uh, I don't know what Contemporary reality show, I would compare it to back then, but uh, it was full of blood and guts, and uh, there was no vehicle crash too too bloody or uh, or no crime, no no triple homicide too horrific for them to report on with gusto. But um, my mother was uh, a tremendous influence on me in many many ways, not the least of them by any means was her interest in in history she was a voracious reader and I was an only child living out in the country and so in the summertime I was plunging every year into our local reading program at the at the local library for for kids and I just you know I just read mostly history and got to be really absorbed with it and and of course not in pre-adolescence as as a sort of analyst of history, but just someone who just sort of consumed history, you know. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, the only only way I could go to college, because my family certainly didn't have the money, was uh, to um, agree to a uh, or accept a Georgia State Teachers Scholarship, which paid you $1,000 a year for every year you agreed to teach in the Georgia public schools upon graduation. I started out teaching... uh, U.S. history, world history, geography, and English, and coaching the debate team at Loganville High School outside Atlanta for the princely sum of $6,000 a year. And at the same time, during the summers, I was trying to pursue a master's degree in history from the University of Georgia. And uh, somewhere in there, all of that, I, I, I began to, to sort of figure out what the study and writing of history was supposed to be about. It, ironically, since I held the Spaulding professorship, uh, which was named for Phinezy Spaulding, who was a colonial historian and a wonderful guy from a, you know aristocratic family, big mane of white hair, swept back, incredibly handsome, but anyway, I just thought he was so cool that maybe if I became a history professor, I'd be that cool. And uh, it didn't work out, but uh, it inspired me to up my game a little bit, up my sights a little bit. And I sort of progressed from I was interested in Southern politics. It was back then; it was still colorful. It was it was also awful, but it, it's still awful. But it's not as colorful as as it used to be. And, but you know, the more and more I fooled around looking at, at politics, I began to, to keep running across the economic forces that were behind it. And I sort of gravitated sort of looking at, at the relationship between the economy and politics and then the economy and race and sort of realized that, that you really are not going to do justice to, to any particular subject. Uh, in Southern history or any other uh, genre of history without uh, being able to to understand the economic background, the economic platform for it. And so uh, I've tried to sort of, when I've written about literature or music, you know, I've always tried to think about economic context. And and when I started all this, by the way, I was six feet tall and handsome. So you can can see what happened,
2: you know, it, it took a, It took a toll on me. Uh. Well, Jim, I had hair before I started this, so this is obviously a condition of the modern historian, the price we pay uh, for interrogating the past. I'm very glad this worked out because, frankly, there are relatively few historians who study economic history. It's sort of fallen out of favor. And it is important precisely because it knits together all sorts of ancillary questions concerning Literacy, um, wages, the economy, culture. And before we get into the specifics of South Carolina, I thought it might be useful to step back just a moment and think about the world in 1918 from an aerial perspective, economically. I think one of the seductions of history is for us to read uh, the past through our present lens. And we, we tend to think it's probably very similar back then. Um, but from an economic point of view, in terms of economic theory, in terms of the way that economies worked, 1918 was a radically different world to the world that we inhabit today. Would you say that's a fair characterization? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, you know, if you look at Europe, where, of course, by 1918
0: the the war is winding down, but you see a lot of the same things you would see in the South or South Carolina. You see a sort of this struggling between, you know, the old ways and the new ways, the the, the you know the more hierarchical view of society and uh, the suspicions of innovation and change, and so you get this sort of process. It's not a linear process. Uh, you know, it's not like you know they somebody discovers oh here's a here's a new more modern way of doing this let's look for more modern things to do and all of a sudden everything is pushing ahead it's a it's a ragged back and forth kind of process that you know it's like world war 1 I. I mean you know they had hellish killing technology in world war 1 but they're still using 19th century tactics you know they're marching people out into a wall of solid lead and you know getting them slaughtered I mean, they've got massive killing capacity, but they, they don't know how to conduct warfare necessarily uh, to utilize that uh, in the most effective way. Well, one thing we as historians always do is we tend to sort of criticize historical figures as, as if they had our hindsight. And... And you know they don't—they don't realize this is happening to them any more than we uh, realize—or in this maybe right now don't want to realize what's happening to us. But it—it's—it's intriguing to see that. So I mean, if you look at the—if you look at the South and South Carolina during this, this period, it's just uh, let's go this way. It's a little move in a new direction, and then there's a pulling back. And it's kind of like you could imagine sort of getting whiplash with all the things that are that are changing, and precipitously sometimes. But then you think, okay, well, there's a breakthrough. Well, maybe not, you know, because, you know, 10 years later, there's still the same number of people farming as sharecroppers, uh, or the same, same percentage as were, or the same percentage of people working, you know, in textile mills at the same jobs that were there 10 years before, even though they've put new machinery in the mill, and the mill might be more productive. It's a period, it is a period of flux and sort of uncertainty, and in and, and Europe, the deal is how can Europe assimilate a, a rising, hard-charging, aggressive, militarized, modernizing Germany, and how can the old tottering empires uh, that lag way behind already te- technologically and uh, in terms of just the inv- where, they, where investments are made, how are they going to cope with it? And so, in a way, it's, it's, it's like uh, in, in the South, it's like, uh, how are we going to cope with this sort of invasion? It, maybe, maybe it was a Yankee invasion, but this, this whole idea of all these, what Southerners viewed as Northern phenomena, like you know automation, like electrification, and the, you know, the telephone, the automobile. How do we handle all this, and, and how do we, we rationalize it? How do we, we adapt to it? So there, there is a commonality there that I think uh, it's interesting to
2: think about, and maybe we can touch on that some more as we go forward. Yeah, no, I think that that's entirely right and uh, very helpful. The First World War is a kind of global moment of change, and you, you see this reflected in South Carolina. I mean, if we look back, it's, in economic terms, the world is barely recognizable from today. Um, we had a different superpower, Great Britain. Um, Now it's just Britain, not so great, but nonetheless, it was great at one point. (laughs) And that First World War is really the beginning of the end in many ways, and the emergence of America stepping into an early vacuum. Um, There's still a gold standard. Uh, Keynes has yet to write anything of meaningful consequence on uh, deficit financing. So this is quite a different world. And in a way, that stage had been set for many years prior to the First World War, and that would also be true of South Carolina in a way, wouldn't it? Because some of the fundamental changes that people find in 1914 in South Carolina and the South generally, really beginning after the Civil War, what what would be some of those fundamental changes that helped set the stage for South Carolina's entry into the, the First World War?
0: Well you know i mean the the, the the Civil War is such a transformative phenomena in and of itself, not just in the south but but nationally i mean the the Civil War sort of promotes the uh, this this exploding of the gap the the economic te- and technological gap between North and south because of the ways that the government the the, the whole union fighting effort so much uh, stimulated an economy that was already kind of cresting into a new era in 1860, but in the South, uh, what it does is it it basically, of course, uh, destroys uh, the uh, central economic system that was at the core of, of the social system, and it plays havoc economically, and the developments, the things, the developments that proceed directly out of the, the impact of the war are things that leave South Carolinians... Uh, in many ways, really, really vulnerable to to some of these uh, these sort of whiplash events that that they're going to encounter in the first two decades of the 20th century. The uh, you know they they were there was something like what 400. I'm trying to think how many what the slave population was in South Carolina. It's about 400,000 as I recall, 1860. So I mean, if if we sort of figured that, you know. E- evening everything out that the average slave might have been worth around a thousand dollars you know you're talking about 400 million dollars in in capital that just vanishes and that was the that was the capital that was financing the economy it was financing the uh, the the growing of cotton it was it was collateral that the, the planters were using to get the money to grow each each year's crops and suddenly that is gone. The, the whole South is capital-starved as a result. And you know banks are hard to come by. The national banking system's been reorganized while the South's out of the Union. Land is worthless because nobody knows if you've got any labor to farm it. So they evolved the, the whole system of the, uh, in South Carolina and elsewhere, the crop lien where you, you, know, you what you do is the only thing you can mortgage is your crop. And it's not just any crop. You can't go get a crop lean to grow sweet potatoes because it, your crop has to be immediately convertible into cash. So the whole idea that Southerners didn't have any more sense than to keep growing cotton when it was it appeared to be going in the tank, it was it was not just a you know matter of choice. They didn't really have any choice because the only way they could get credit was to grow a cash crop. And all in all, tobacco being an exception's periodically maybe, but they could, they could make a whole lot more, stood to make a whole lot more growing cotton than any other crop, which means they have to give up. They have to give up self-sufficiency because in the antebellum period, they could, the whole approach to agriculture was different, the laws were different. You could graze your, your livestock uh, just out in the open woods and fields, and uh, you didn't have to necessarily devote grazing land to having beef or hogs. And so you could feed your, your family much more readily and you could, you know, do some services for a nearby landlord or, or you know, cut him some fence posts or, or do or make some trade with a local merchant for the things you couldn't produce yourself. But you were they were basically practicing what what some people call safety first agriculture. They were, you know, let, I'm doing enough to make sure my family's fed. And then if I get a chance, I'm going to grow an acre or two of cotton for for cash. But you couldn't do that in the postbellum period uh, nearly so well. Um, and, and the railroads changed things, but the uh, pivotal institution was, was the credit mercantile business that it, it didn't want to buy your fence posts. I mean, it's being supplied, you know, out of New York or out of New England. And maybe the goods are actually cheaper per unit, but they have to be paid for in in currency, you know. Uh, and they weren't taking any Bitcoin back then, <laughs> for sure. So, so, so what happens is is your smaller farmers, uh, all farmers to a certain extent, lose their self sufficiency, and and they are increasingly now forced to purchase foodstuffs and uh, other things that they previously produced for themselves, and and so the whole process devolves as. Landholding, uh, uh, it's, it's so difficult to, because you, you imagine that uh, interest rates in a system where the collateral is an uh, unplanted crop of indeterminate size or, or value, uh, you know, you're not going to exactly get bottom line uh, interest rates. So, so it's very, very difficult uh, economically, really at all levels of the system. And, and, and so you do find... That there's a lot of foreclosure, a lot of people become tenant farmers on land uh, you know that they had either owned or, or uh, somebody else's land, and they have even less recourse than to feed themselves. The South Carolina passes a, a, a fence law in 1877 that uh, up until that time uh, it was if anybody wanted to protect their crop from livestock, it was their responsibility to fence the crop. Now you had to fence your livestock. So if you're farming, you know, if you've got a little tenant plot, every acre is precious to grow that cash crop. And uh, you have to really think about how many acres you want to devote to, to you know, trying to feed out a hog or a raise beef. You know, it just sort of all kind of militates against self-sufficiency. I mean, agriculture drops down just simply in scale. Under tenancy, they start to count a tenant. Farm plot as a as a farm, so the average farm size in South Carolina goes from 1880 to 1910. I think it, the farm size drops from practically by half, or or maybe a, maybe night by 1920. It has so so everything the agriculture is on a, a much more tenuous, smaller scale, and so when they get hit by these dramatic plunges in prices or sudden drying up of markets, you know it hurts uh, in because they have just lost a lot of their independence and self-sufficiency that their parents may have had, even though the parents, uh, doubtless, didn't have anything like you know, the cash income. So that has made the population, black and white, much more vulnerable. And, of course, the, there is a higher percentage of black people who are uh, sharecroppers, tent farmers, uh, than whites, although it's still high. It's you know, 60% throughout the period we're talking about so, I mean, you know, there is that. There is the fact that South Carolina had uh, a contentious period in Reconstruction in terms of black-white political and physical conflict. But uh, there'd been a steady kind of move to take the vote away from black people, which was achieved in kind of in two stages in 1882 uh, with a re-registration law. And, you know, and a poll tax, and then in 1895, it was all written, you know, and extended into the state constitution. So you got, you know, well, you might have had 70% of adult black males voting in 1880, and you got about 11% voting by the turn of the century. And this means that they basically have lost any say-so in terms of their relationship to the state, the, the services that the state provides, yeah, the schools, for example. Yeah, they, people used to say, "Well, it was really the Southerners were just so white Southerners just so stupid." Um, yeah, they ran a dual school system and and spent twice as much to educate the kids just because they didn't want to mix the races. Well, you know, people who go back and actually look at the numbers will tell you that's balderdash because white Southerners and white South Carolinians starved black schools. A county with a, a, a black majority, if you, when you started getting state appropriations, that was great if you, to be a white kid in a county with a black majority because you're ever spending a lot of money on your schools because they're starving the black schools. And, you know, like Dillon County is sometime first, first decade of the 20th century. I think it was spending 12 times as much on a, on a white pupil as a black pupil. So, so they, you know, they couldn't control that. They couldn't get the education that might have helped them gain a, a foot up and in you know, 1900 way over 50% of the adult black male population in South Carolina was illiterate so there are all of these things that have sort of left people kind of unmoored and, and just sort of hoping something good is going to happen and of course when it does they, they react to it very exuberantly but they have no no control and no even you know I think very little conception of
2: how quickly things can turn bad again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that's entirely right. These crushing continuities from the end of the Civil War and really a reconfiguration of some antebellum practices after the Civil War, the, and I, I forget where I read this, but there is an estimate that the actual cost of the Civil War in 1860 dollars was almost directly equal to the cost of freeing 3.8 million slaves. In other words, had the South taken the exchange for compensated emancipation, there would have been a rougher equality. There w- the war would have cost nothing, uh, and there would have been a compensated emancipation. But in the absence of that, counterfactually, we have exactly as you say, this crushing continuity. But there are also real differences, aren't there? I mean, don't new things happen in the early part of the 20th century that begin to set the South Carolina and the South on a different trajectory and I'm thinking most obviously about industrialization and of course I have a particular dog in this fight I'm not sure that slavery was a pre-industrial system I thought it was quite industrial factories in the field and it had all the hallmarks of an industrial system but because it's in a rural environment people don't think of it in those terms so When I say industrialization, I mean the the, the conventional industrialization that most historians say, yes, it has factories, therefore it's industrial. That's an important departure point, isn't it, Jim, for the early 20th century? Oh, absolutely. uh, Once South Carolina is coming out of reconstruction
0: at the end of the 1870s, the the conditions with, with, with farming and agriculture and the greatly diminished opportunity in agriculture... Uh, creates uh, a, a kind of a willing labor base. They certainly had, South Carolina had as much probably uh, investment ana- in Annabella manufacturing as, as any southern state, but the, the 1880s in particular see the, the rise of, of cotton mills. The textile industry has been ensconced in New England for a, a long time by then, but there's a catch up, a game of catch up going on there, and in the case of, of uh, southern textile mills, so many of them, South Carolina in particular, in the eighteen eighties were very, very small, uh, the the old idea that all of all these Yankees just sent their money down here to run to build textile mills, that, that comes later and, and and doesn't is not as big a deal when it comes as as many people think. So they're 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 building these mills based on uh, a, a local, usually a pooled asset of a local community. You know, you're talking about people's life savings and maybe what's a little surplus that a church might have or, a, you know, the Widows and Orphans Fund. Or, and, and so they're extremely risk-averse. They, they can't jump out there to try the leading edge of what's going on in the textile industry. It has to be very, very rudimentary uh, manufacturing, uh, sort of first stage processing of of cotton, using you know raw, totally raw, unskilled labor uh, off the farm, and so the the scale there's expansion and you know their mills popping up all over the place. But the scale that, of those mills is uh, they're small scale, they're low value added, they're not they're not turning tremendous profits and there's a very interesting equilibrium going on that is, uh, in some ways, may have, may have actually held back South Carolina's textile industry's expansion in that there's such a surplus of white labor available because, you know, the, the agricultural sector is, is, is shrinking in terms of, of demand, I'm talking about, and, and profit opportunities. The, the wage... Uh, in the textile mills uh, in the 1880s all the way well into the early 20th century is essentially pegged to the farm wage because you only have to pay if you want if you ever get short of labor which they they did there was a real boom in mill building in the first decade of the 20th century but there's, there's such a huge surplus of white labor out there that all you have to do is is pay just a little bit above the farm wage and the farm wage in the South consistently lagged by, by a tremendous percentage, by you know, 50 cents, uh, say, uh, as a daily wage. Even the farm wage in the Northeast and certainly lagged way behind the industrial wage. So that there's such a, such a reservoir of labor that you basically go into the mill, and the only way to, uh, to make it make sense economically is take your whole family into the mill and negotiate a family wage, which means you know, women, children working in the mills, which creates an interesting dynamic when the, 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 you know, these impulses, a lot of uh, women in South Carolina uh, and, and a good, good number of progressive politicians you know, were desperate early on to do something about child labor in the mills. But uh, when they're trying to do that, they're basically going to cut the family income because there's a family wage. That, that factors in having child labor. So the industry goes through these, these growing pains to get there, but gradually, you, you build up a mill class, which is, a, if you're a native South Carolinians, you know, was a, that was a class divide that was, that was real. But you get a generation of people who have never farmed, say, and they get more and more separation from the farm and in the 1880s, there was fluidity. If the okay, they built a little little mill here, and you go in there and go work, and it doesn't work out, you just go back to the farm. But you can't, you know, you can't really do that by the early 20th century, because for one thing, you've gotten out to farm, and you know, there's nobody who wants you <laughs> to come back to the farm. But gradually, there is a maturity in technology, uh, in in the whole process of. Uh, Textile manufacturing, that the process is speeded up, productivity rises, and you see an interesting shift in the demographic of the mill workforce. Uh, it was Hale's great victory when they got significant child labor legislation in South Carolina. Except the mills were more than ready to concede that because by by that point they they realized that that you know using relying on child labor was really an impediment to increasing productivity. The, the process has gotten so speedy and demanding, so you see a rise in male employment in the mills, a decline in female employment, and uh, ultimately the disappearance of, of, of children. But it also has, the, the mill, the textile industry has by, by 1920, it's reached a point where it means something that you spent your whole life in a cotton mill you've acquired experience. You've acquired a sort of comfort with that kind of work so that the mill owners do not want to, they they don't want to lose you. They don't want to pay you anymore, but they don't want to lose you. And so you start to see, nonetheless, you see a separation finally between the farm wage and the mill wage. And you read about wage cuts in the mills, and they certainly were. But I'm betting if you really follow real closely, you're going to find they're mostly entry-level wages that are being cut, because they simply didn't want to lose the skilled operatives who, who, you know, who knew how to could do two or three tasks in the mill and could do them expeditiously. So when you get to the depression in the textile industry after the war, and I you mean know, the the 1920s are just a terrible decade for textiles and and the cotton economy in, in in South Carolina, but what they do is instead of instead of firing or cutting, trying to cut the wages of the most senior workers, they cut their hours. And you know, there's a great old uh, kind of a novelty song called "Cotton Mill Colic," and one of the lines is, the, "They'll run a few days and then they'll stand just to keep down the working man." So they they either cut your hours or they also use these various processes that mostly fall under the heading of the stretch out, to wring more productivity out of the, you know, the same workforce and, or even in fewer hours worked. And this, of course, sparks the textile unrest in the uh, 20s and uh, you know, feeds over into the, the 30s, and it, and it sort of is a boom to union activity. And, of course, there is a move, there's a gradual move in agriculture to, you know, to mechanize. That's very, very slow in South Carolina. Uh, it really doesn't come... Until later, you know, really boosted along by the New Deal, say. So, but there were these possibilities. And the war itself, you know, introduces uh, Southerners or Southern leaders during the, during the period from the end of Reconstruction up through the 1930s, are, they're sort of gradually trying to acclimate themselves to the presence of the federal government and, you know, basically an expanding presence uh, in their lives. But, but they're, they're also understanding that the feds can actually do stuff for you that's good. It's good for you and good for your state. The key is to keep them out of your business, particularly your racial business. And so, you know, in Mississippi, and the, you know, the, 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 the planners, the congressmen, you know, they latch on to, they play the government like a drum to build new levees along the Mississippi River to you know, start real flood control. And and so when the war comes and you get these, you know, expenditures for camps, what was it, Camp Severe at Greenville and uh, I don't think many of these things are around now. I mean Fort J- Camp Jackson obviously is, but the Charleston Naval Yard, they they, they they get this sense of this federal spending, you know, it can be very, very beneficial. And this is where I'm pretty sure is born. I know it was in Georgia, World War One, the whole idea that, you know, since we we basically are sending the same people back to Washington all the time, because we've disfranchised everybody who might vote against them, let's use our seniority and start directing a lot of this federal money down here, particularly the military money. So I mean that's where that's where you know that's the background of Mendel Rivers in this state, or Carl Vinson in Georgia, but they're they're starting to sort of see this as something you can cultivate, you can you can tweak. You got to watch the feds, you know. And South Carolinians were more, you know, they were a little more leery because Reconstruction had lasted much longer and they had been troops in South Carolina longer. And so it took a little more getting used to. But the idea of, of sort of adapting to a federal presence and actually exploiting it, it was something else that,
2: that comes, to this, comes to this period. So the, your, your comments remind me of the old chestnut question that every undergraduate has to answer about wars. Were they an economic boon, or were they deleterious? Did they hold something back? And of course, we're accustomed to think of wars as accelerating economic growth. I just looked up a couple of numbers before we we gathered here, and on the surface, the numbers are staggering. Total farm incomes in South Carolina rose from 121 million in 1916 to 446 million by 1918 the value of textile production doubled between those years from 168 million to 326 million. These are enormous multipliers just within two years. My question is, Jim, is that really a reflection of the economic accelerant of the war or just how wretched things were in 1916? Well, I'd say both. Cotton had it, it enjoyed something of a comeback
0: in the first decade of the, of the 20th century, and I th- if I remember correctly, I think in 1914, cotton was selling at 13.5 cents a pound in South Carolina. And uh, then, of course, what, with World War I, the British blockade the North Atlantic, which puts a kibosh on all our shipments of cotton to England or anywhere in Europe. And so, 1915, the price of cotton drops by one half to six and a half cents a pound. Then finally, as we move on into war, we get involved. Of course, there's more domestic demand for cotton for and textile products, mm. you know, for uniforms and tents. And, and then, of course, we can resume our trade with Great Britain. And so, by 1920, the price of cotton has jumped up to 40 cents a pound, which was three times more than three times what it was in 1914. This is true for farmers all over the country. I mean, the, you know, the government pushed everybody to produce to the max, plant as many acres in cotton as you can, and it paid off for a year or two. I mean, and it paid off very well. This was, this was good enough so that even down at the very bottom of the ladder, the tenants were actually, you know, able to have some walk-around money. I mean, they had money to spend, and it, and it was a, you know, it did. It was quite a little little infusion of, of energy into the South Carolina economy. But when peace breaks out, then you know, nobody is around to say, well, here, okay, we going to kind of, what we're going to do is we're going to subsidize, we're going to give you price supports here while the price goes down. It was just thunk. Mm-hmm. So the price of cotton is uh, 40 cents, uh, at it's peak selling 40 cents a pound in 1920, selling back at 13 and a half cents a pound in 1921. And, and textiles get into that same predicament uh, because basically they have saturated the American market during the war, and after the war, you know you, you simply don't have that need for the processed cotton to that extent, so they you know they, that, that's behind this depression where they have to start the stretch out system and and all of that. I think wars I think uh, World War two is would be you could make a better case for uh, for World War II, being a bigger kind of long-term boost to the economy, just because of the sheer overwhelming amount of money—like nine billion dollars spent in the South, defense spending in the South mm. during the World War II. World War One was—we our involvement was too brief. But but this whole period, as I as I said, while ago, oh, good stuff is happening. So here we are. Let's go up and then crash. Bad stuff is happening. It's sort of like you'd get whiplash, you need a neck brace to make it through this whole whole experience. But it, it's, what's happening is I think change comes about, I, I'm, I'm not going to inflict it on you, but I've, I used to force my students to listen to my model of, of what I call the turning period in Southern <laughs> history, which basically starts about 1910 and runs through 1945. And you have so many things that happen that not necessarily you know all kind of line up into a trend, but they just shake things. They shake things loose. You know, you've 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 got what we just talked about—the you know the push and pull of the um, economy. You got the the you know massive outmigration of black people from South Carolina, which has been going on before the 20th century. But you know, it really ramps up uh, when World War One cuts off the flow of immigration to northern factories for jobs. Then suddenly jobs open up for Southern blacks, and you, you, know, you get thousands of black South Carolinians leaving the state, which then you know, puts questions about, uh, well, what are we gonna do about our remaining labor? How are we gonna uh, grow our, our cotton? And it creates all these you know, anxieties for farmers, even though they were going around most of the time prior to that saying, I oh, wish we could get rid of them, uh, all the, all the you know, black people in the state. And then you know the Boeville, gets here, gets to South Carolina. It hits in in 1922, and uh, right on top, you know, you got the price of cotton going south, and then the boll weevil shows up and just rips into cotton production so that, that, you know, you got a massive drop in cotton production in 1922, and you have just in the space of a few months after the uh, end of the 1922 cotton crop season, Fifty thousand black people leave South Carolina in like eight months, just because the uh, uh, you know there's it's just one thing after another, and and if, if you're trying to hang on, you want to stay where you grew up, you want you know you don't want to split your family up, but it's just one kind of thing hitting after another, and so you get these compounding kind of shock waves, and you get you know a great a great percentage of all farms in the United States were in a depression from the early 20s until the stock market crash. You know, they, they don't know what to do. Farmers historically uh, react to f- rising prices and falling prices exactly the same way. They grow more, because it's the only way they can keep their income up. So, so you know, you, you, it, it simply promotes overproduction of cotton, which of course is going to tank prices. So when a New Deal comes along and, and then jumps in and sort of stabilizes that, but further reduces the scale of, of southern agriculture and the farm population. It creates another kind of surplus of uh, surplus population that strike state and local leaders in particular as as you know we've got such a, a you know underutilized population who are looking around to get on the dole and not doing anything that that it, I think it really accelerates their interest in actively recruiting industrial investment. From outside the state, this is something that sort of catches hold in the twenties, and uh, South Carolina and most other southern states come out of the thirties, really intent on doing that. I mean, there were unions in South Carolina going way back uh, in the nineteenth century. I mean, they they were not really ever quite there to stay. I mean, they did well until they had to test their strength in a strike, and it usually was the end of them. And then. Uh, Federal presence during the New Deal sort of provided a little umbrella for union growth in, in the state in the uh, in the 30s, but the states political leaders and the economic development leaders realizing that that it's all those underutilized people who who basically don't have much skill and are willing to work cheap if you're going to get investment. That's what's going to draw outside investment. You know, it's not the high-tech laboratories that South Carolina has, you know, at that point, or the possibilities for uh, developing technology that will uh, create a whole new industrial revolution. It's it's basically cheap labor. So that is, is I think, the root of this incredibly strong anti-union tradition coming from the top in South Carolina. They people say, well, you know, it's... People off the farm, they were very individualistic and, you know, they just didn't cotton to these outsiders. Well, all that's true to a certain extent, but uh, they pretty quickly also realized that uh, they wouldn't be working very long if they, if they did seem at all interested in what these folks had to say. And, and of course, the state does everything it can to discourage a union presence. But, but that union activity was also part of this ferment, the to and fro, that kind of marks the World War I.
2: So I think this idea of a turning period is very helpful because it essentially doesn't allow us to identify one factor and one factor alone as causal as multiple things having said that um, I think one of the real benefits of this conversation is to remind people who perhaps are not inclined to see either America or South Carolina as having any real relevance in the First World War that there was relevance. I mean far be it from me to speak from a European perspective, uh, but there is a tendency in a continent racked by the First World War and the Second World War to often quietly discount the participation or the effect on America. And certainly that was much more obvious in the Second World War, but most Europeans, in the First World War, the Americans didn't really suffer, they didn't really, didn't really impact them in any sustained way. But plainly, when you look at the South Carolina angle, it did have an impact. And you know, part of this is because, you know, part of this this conceit, is that, you know, South Carolina is a very rural place still in 1920. I mean, we have what a population of 1.6 million people, and 1.3 million of them live in rural areas. So the assumption is that well, they couldn't possibly be affected by this because it's not an industrial society. But they were affected in some important ways. And I think that your point about the, the cotton prices is absolutely right. Uh, the, effect, the, the inflated prices as a result of the war, in a way, the war exposes the pre-existing vulnerabilities that you outlined at the beginning. All of the things, all those crushing legacies from the Reconstruction period that made their way into South Carolina in the 20th century were in a way exposed by the war and then exacerbated, I think, in the 20s and 30s. Let let me push you a bit more on this business of trade unions. Uh, Jim has a very interesting blog. He's a a very talented writer and it's well worth looking at his blog. But one of your more recent interventions has been, and I don't mean to take this up too far, but we are inheritors of our past. One of your more recent essays talks to the question of state sponsorship of economic development and trade unionism. And in a way, if I heard you correctly, the First World War has this kind of odd federal intervention, a state sponsorship of economic development and the relevance of trade unionism. Is there some connection that we can make between then and now, or is that just a fruitless and dangerous task?
0: Well, yeah, I think if you look at, at um, unionism's expansion and recession in the first half of the 20th century in the South, I mean, you you see it happens either in relative boom periods when there's the pie is growing so much that there's less inclination to quibble about, how big everybody's slice is, mm-hmm. and then of course when it comes back to crunch time, it's another matter but I, th- I think that the, the unfortunate history of labor violence in South Carolina and, the, and you know in the textile belt generally uh, in the uh, in the 20s and, and 30s left uh, a kind of, a, of a, you know a stigma that could be manipulated to associate labor unions with Outside agitators, or you know, un, uh, you know, social unrest, social upheaval, and it was so easy then to pull the union. I mean, everybody knew, you know, what a bunch of race mixers the CIO was. Your son would be working next to a, a, a black guy if they both joined the union, or they were seditious. I mean, they were. You know, everybody kn- knows the union organizers were really communists at heart, and so it's so easy to manipulate that imagery, if you I you mean know, if you can swallow the whole inverted paradigm that we're going to make our people more prosperous by holding their wages down, you can accept the idea that that, you know, obviously organizations that are dedicated to the progress of workers are contrary to our best interests. You know, I just think the South had to learn how to be anti union. It wasn't necessarily nearly as much of this sort of cultural thing that just, you know, these old boys off the farm, you know, didn't need any outsider telling them what to do. I mean, they were, that was certainly there. But it's like my father. I mean, my father, when finally it was apparent we were going to starve to death if he didn't quit farming, in fact, it well past when it was apparent to me we were going to starve to death if he didn't quit farming. Uh, he, he did quit farming, and he went to work in a shock absorber plant. Uh, it was Monroe shock absorbers, which, are in, you know, came out of Monroe, Michigan, right, you know, supply Detroit. The union organizers would show up and say, you know, here's here's the check stub of the guy who does exactly what you do in our in this plant in Monroe, Michigan. And he'd look at it and he'd see, you know, he was making half what the guy doing the job in Michigan was. But he also knew he was making a hell of a lot more money than uh, than he'd ever seen in his lifetime and had ever made on the farm. And he looked at it that way, that, the, you know, this is... This job is, a, is the key to a better life for my family, and I'm not going to mess it up because you could look. Roger Milliken had already co- closed quite a few textile plants by then when there was talk of unionization. Mm-hmm. So it was a reality. You know, it, was, it, was a, it was a lot less an emotional decision than it was a calculation of interest. It, it's not necessarily that all this propaganda was necessarily working, although the threats to close down a plant worked and and the you know, they did in the case of this most recent blog you're talking about and they, they they basically did with a huge Nissan plant in Mississippi the you know the veiled threats to close down the plant if the if a union was voted in so so there there is this sort of uh, growing tendency to sort of just just associate organized labor with, with alien forces and part of it you know during the new deal what happens of course is the democrats become much more oriented toward organized labor but they also become more oriented toward uh, toward african americans and one reason is that all these thousands upon thousands of black people have been leaving the south where they can't vote and moving to northern cities where they can so so they're they're constituting you know and they're they're going to large cities which means they're give you in fairly populous states that have lots of electoral votes that are worth courting. So there are certain roots here for uh, the the civil rights movement, but it's one of those kind of interesting intersections between a sort of uh, sociocultural phenomena Mm -hmm. and prejudices and and hard economic
2: realities. So Jim, you've given us a, a great deal to think about, and then it remains only for me to say a hearty thank you for a really fascinating conversation Professor Jim Cobb, ladies and gentlemen.
1: Thank you. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did because I listened to the conversation between my two friends, Mark Smith and Jim Cobb, about how World War I had an impact on the economy of South Carolina. We're not just talking about industry, which, of course, would be textiles, but also agriculture and the labor market. Women did come into the labor force in World War I. Agriculture became profitable. Textile mills ran three shifts a day. All of this war effort gave a tremendous boost to the state. And to that, you have to add the impact of the military bases in Greenville, Spartanburg, Charleston, and Columbia. While the war gave a temporary boost to the state's economy and the workforce, After the war, things slid back a bit, and by 1920, South Carolina was already in the Great Depression. This perhaps unknown story is also a part of our state's history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.